Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining the show. Today, I'm talking with Gary McGugan, author of Pernicious Pursuit, an international thriller that touches on many significant issues such as human trafficking, a global pandemic, corporate greed, corruption, misogyny, and much more. It's a fast-paced, exciting read that will keep you on your toes from the first page to the very last sentence. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Gary. Gary D. McGugan loves to tell stories and is the author of Three Weeks Less a Day, The Multima Scheme, Unrelenting Peril, and Pernicious Pursuit. Whether sharing a vision with colleagues in large multinational corporations, helping consulting clients implement expert advice, or writing a corporate thriller, Gary uses artful suspense to entertain and inform. His launch of a new writing career, at an age most people retire, reveals an ongoing zest for new challenges and a lifelong pursuit of knowledge. Home may be in Toronto, but his love of travel and broad business knowledge accumulated from extensive experiences around the globe are evident in every chapter Gary writes. You can learn more about Gary D. McGugan and his work at GaryDMcGuganBooks.com. Well, hi, Gary. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you, Sherry. I have been so excited, looking forward to talking with you because I've been a fan of yours since I read your first novel. So to get started today, tell us a little bit about your latest novel, Pernicious Pursuit. Sure. Uh, Pernicious Pursuit is uh, a great story, I think, about uh, our friend Howard Knight, who appeared in each of the three preceding novels, and uh, his lover, Janet Weasel. And uh, they have unfortunately been found in uh, the Netherlands, where they were hiding in a witness protection program. And unfortunately, uh, they are pursued And that creates our story, which uh, takes place at different times and places as they split up. But we cover a lot of ground and have a lot of fun as uh, both characters try to escape from this nefarious organization I like to call the organization. (laughs) A criminal element that we try to expose as uh, heartless and very much looking for some revenge throughout the story. Yeah, it's such a great story. High speed and full of action and thrills and suspense. I loved it. Now, the first three novels uh, make up a trilogy using an international company, the Multima Corporation, as a backdrop. You changed that up a bit for Pernicious Pursuit. Yeah, that's right. I did uh, quite a different approach. I would say that Pernicious Pursuit has really nothing to do uh, with the corporate world at all. I think the other three novels, my first three when I started out, I tried to follow that age-old advice that we should write what we know about. Mm-hmm. And I spent over 40 years working with large multinational corporations and understand and uh, enjoy that environment and love to tell stories about it. As I did those stories, I introduced the element of 
organized crime and, of course, had to do some research on organized crime since that wasn't a a primary field of interest before (laughs) I started writing. And through that, I was able to learn a lot about the underworld and wanted to write a story that focused on just what kinds of personalities are involved in the organized crime world on an international scene. And I think Pernicious Pursuit does that in the sense that we do get a little bit more insight into perhaps some of the character makeups of people who really are the kingpins of these criminal organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you really provide a vivid look into these characters that make up the organization. And yeah, I must say they get quite grisly at times. Now, all four of your novels cover a large expanse of geography around the world. Why do you prefer international settings for your books rather than telling a story that takes place in just say New York or Toronto or some other large business center? My philosophy is that one of the purposes of writing is, of course, the main objective is to entertain. And and I hope everybody that reads any one of my stories will, will agree that it's a very entertaining story. But I think we also have, as writers, uh, an obligation to uh, share ideas and plant seeds and cause people to think about things perhaps outside of the, the storyline itself. And uh, I learned very early in my career that travel is a very potent learning tool. And I really do think of myself as a uh, citizen of the world and uh, feel that I can be comfortable in virtually every country that I visit. And with every place that I travel, I learn, enjoy that learning, and I think I gain from that experience. So when I'm writing, I try to give people who are reading the stories a little bit of a sense of what lies uh, below the surface in some of the countries and areas where uh, the stories take place. Mm -hmm. And I get off the beaten track a little bit uh, in uh, Germany. Not everyone who visits Germany would go to Dusseldorf, for an example. And you know, they might more, more likely go to Frankfurt or Munich or, or Berlin. And I try to, in, in Pernicious Pursuit, I talk about a, a little town in the northwest of Spain called Ayamante, uh, which uh, probably very few of the readers uh, have ever heard about. I do this by design so that uh, people will hopefully get comfortable with the idea of of exploring those a little bit more and uh, in doing so, maybe develop a little bit of the taste that I have uh, for travel and and share it with me. Yeah. And, you know, what I love about that is that it's a great time. uh, If anything good, I guess, can come out of this time period that we're living in right now. You know, it's a great time to travel in books and your books display such a wide geography for everyone. It's a good time to go international, huh? <laughs> well, I, I think so. And, and, and as you say, while a lot of people are in some form of self-isolation, it does give them uh, something maybe to just detract from the day-to-day a little bit and uh, put out a little bit of perhaps a little bit of hope for the future as well. Right, right. Now, you've done a lot of travel internationally. How do you research the international settings in Pernicious Pursuit? 
Well, the uh, good fortune is that virtually every uh, town and village in Pernicious Pursuit I have uh, visited at some mm. time or another and uh, created a little bit of a feel for it that way. I also had the good fortune of living in Europe and working in Europe for about a seven-year period. Oh, wow. And during that time, uh, actually was based in Dusseldorf, Germany that I was just referring to <laughs> and had the opportunity to visit and spend considerable amounts of time in each of the Western European countries, not the Eastern countries so much, but mm -hmm. Western European uh, became very familiar with. So when it comes time for research, I really, for the most part, draw on uh, my memories of those places and need to do a little bit of Google and that sort of thing to maybe touch up on names or make sure that I've got my uh, mileages correct and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, generally, uh, I can say that I have uh, either worked or visited or lived in, in each of those cities at some time. That's nice. So based on writing what you know, you have a wide territory to cover, huh? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> While we were in isolation, I did a little bit of an exercise where I had time to track the number of cities and countries that I visited. And uh, I think many, many people would find it surprising to know that I've been to 42 countries now and uh, 680 individual cities. And many of those are concentrated in the U.S. and Canada, of course, but uh, at least uh, one third of the amount are overseas. So uh, it's been a wonderful experience from that perspective. That is amazing. I've been to three, counting Canada and Mexico and the U.S. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, hopefully after international travel opens up, you might want to explore a little farther afield. <laughs> I know. Right now, I'll just do it through your novels, though. Uh, fair um, enough. Now, you touch upon several significant issues relative to the world we live in, uh, specifically as it relates to women. In fact, Pernicious Pursuit has some dark moments where women are treated very poorly. Why did you feel it necessary to write those kinds of passages? I gave a lot of thought to that because, as you said, uh, the passages are definitely not a uh, nice uh, treatment of women in any way. Yeah. But I think we need to, when we talk about organizations that are part of the criminal world, I think all too often the media almost tends to glorify some of these criminals as uh, people who have found a way to beat the system and become extremely wealthy and enjoy wonderful lifestyles and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and we lose sight, I think, a little bit of uh, the character of some of these people and uh, some of the real damage they do to society as part of their conquest for power and wealth. And I think the question of human trafficking and and that whole area of prostitution that is in many countries of the world controlled by the criminal elements, I think we need to, in, in a sense, pull back the cover on that a little bit and help people understand that uh, these organizations have very little uh, redeeming value mm -hmm. and really are harmful in many different ways. And I think I tried to demonstrate that in Pernicious Pursuit a little bit. The other thing is that... Um, you know, often when I'm talking with people in North America, 
people seem to think of human trafficking as something that takes place somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Typically in, you know, a faraway country like Thailand or India or, or, or some place that they probably never visited and, and think that that's common there, but not in North America. One of the things that I tried to do in the story was help people relate to how close to home it can actually get. And in some of the best neighborhoods, we can find the victims of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And I point out in the story, Naples, Florida, which is one of the nicest cities in the United States. I use that as an example. And I learned that from uh, the time when I uh, lived in southern Florida for a number of years and became familiar with uh, just how widespread the problem is, even in some of the nicest neighborhoods in the United States. Yeah. And the other thing is, maybe a lot of people don't realize that it's still going on today. Like this is something that used to happen in the world, but it doesn't anymore. But it, it's still going on. And we just don't hear too much about it. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's why I felt it was necessary to work into the story. And I try to work it into a, a modern timeline and a circumstance that uh, is very much in the present. And uh, hopefully readers will pick up that message. And I think by all of us being more aware and more questioning about the whole issue, we'll actually help to prevent the scourge of human trafficking from spreading even even more quickly and into even more places. Right, right, absolutely. Now, back to the women, your ability to create authentic female characters is just uncanny. You do a remarkable job. What kind of preparation and research goes into creating your female characters in order to portray them so accurately as you do? Well, I thank you for saying that because <laughs> I still think personally that's one of the areas that I need to improve upon most. I think because I really work at it, that may help create some of that aura that you're that you're sensing. Mm -hmm. Throughout all of my business career, I was very fortunate in working with a very large number of women in different cultures and in different environments. I think as writers, we all have a tendency to observe what's going on around us and observe people and listen to them, study them a little bit and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think that that proximity to women has helped me out a little bit as opposed to someone who worked on a construction site or something and didn't have a, an opportunity to, right. <laughs> to get to know so many women so well. The other thing I think, though, is that I, because I am very conscious of writing from a, a male perspective, uh, when it comes time to develop the female point of view, I, I really try to imagine people who I've encountered who generally fit that character in some ways and ask myself that age old question, well, what would she do here? Or what would she say at a time like this? And hopefully um, draw some of those memories to be able to create a little more realism than a guy might otherwise be able to. Right, right. And do you use beta readers, specifically women, to focus on the female characters in your novels? 
Well, I definitely use beta readers, uh, both male and female. And to my good fortune, I use female editors as well. Mm. And I emphasize to them every time we work together. And and it's the same crew that we've been working with. So uh, they've heard the message more than once that I really want them to highlight anything that they think is inappropriate or doesn't quite fit uh, the female perspective from their point of view. Mm -hmm. Of course, I have the final say on it and I make the decision, but I do listen carefully to the input that I get from people. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Now, let's talk about Howard. Howard Knight is a major character in all four of your novels. And in each one, we see very different sides of him. What is it about Howard Knight that you find so fascinating? Well, I think I try to create Howard to reflect that with almost all of us, when we are put into different circumstances, we might very well react in different ways than we're programmed to react or as people would expect us to react. And Howard, I think, is one of these really useful characters. He's a uh, he's brilliant. He's, he's as a financial genius. He helped to uh, uh, make the organization a phenomenally wealthy criminal element and, and uh, has lots of great ideas and creativity. But he also has human failings, like we all have. <laughs> and uh, his human failings happen to usually uh, center around his judgment. I intentionally used the judgment as his weak point. We, we could have given him a, a drug problem. We could have given him an alcohol problem or something like that. But I chose judgment to be his weak point because I think we can do so many great things in a story using uh, lapses in judgment. Yeah. And poor Howard, he does, uh, unfortunately, fall into a, a few very awkward circumstances in each of the stories. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I find him to be a very entertaining character. And uh, I can say in the, the next story, we'll have Howard Knight again when, when we work on novel number five. And, and uh, we will again see uh, some more lapses in judgment. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, and, and it's not just Howard, though, with all of your characters, they go back and forth, they're good, and then they're bad, and then you like him, and then you don't. And, you know, I'm always guessing just when I think I know what one of your characters is going to do, you completely throw me for a loop. <laughs> well, thank you. That means I've succeeded in my mission. Uh, I Again, I think most people uh, if they're confronted with different circumstances, different events, expected or unexpected, quite often will react in ways that we don't expect, but are completely plausible, if you like, uh, not necessarily predictive, but I think a reader could say, yeah, I could see how uh, this character could change from such a uh, hardworking individual to this little bit of lax attitude towards something. Yeah. And uh, using that as an example, I think we can um, peel back certain layers of character in each of us as individuals. And I try to do that in my stories as well. Yeah. And in addition to your characters, your storylines are also layered with, um, oh, I guess I call them keep you guessing twists and turns. So uh, how do you develop your storylines? 
Well, I think, you know, the, your phrase twists and turns, I think, is something that I am always mindful of. Like most writers, I start out with an outline and uh, I have a, a fairly general idea of where the story is going to go from, mm -hmm. from start to finish. But I'm a little bit like Stephen King. I think he was quoted once as saying that if he knew how the story was, precisely how the story was going to end, he wouldn't bother telling the story. Mm. Uh, because part of the excitement is the twist and turns in my mind. Yeah. So I start out with a plan and um, I'd like to share with people, uh, one of my habits is that I like to walk and it's my, my way of keeping physically fit. And uh, I walk for about two hours a day mm. and I do it at a very brisk pace, as fast as I can walk. I don't use any headsets or listen to music or anything like that. All I do is think. And while I'm writing, I will take whatever chapter or scene or you know, passage that I'm working on, and I will actually try to think of ways to make it more complex or to create a twist and turn that I hadn't foreseen when I started out. And I think that these are one of the things that make the stories so engaging. And I can tell you as a writer, it's lots of fun. And I hope it's as much fun for uh, everyone who reads the story as well. Yeah, yeah. And kudos to you for your physical fitness regime. That's amazing. Well, we got to keep that heart rate up, right? Yeah. Yep. And if we can get into some green space, like a park or yeah. some trails, even better. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Stephen King. Uh, so I'm curious, what do you like to read? And is there any one author in particular who influences your own work as an author? I like to read very broadly. I, I can't say I read everything that I get my hands on, but I, I really do have a, an appetite for variety. Right now, I'm reading a book called Phase Shift. That's by a, a Canadian author by the name of Elise Abram, an independent writer, not well known, but she tells a very interesting science fiction story. And she tells it from the perspective of an archaeologist who's interested in the environment. And uh, I find it a, you know, a very engaging read, very entertaining. Uh, the one before that that I was reading was called Challenging Barriers and Walking the Path. Uh, this was a work of nonfiction, and it was written by uh, a writer who, at a very young age, I believe it was five or six, experienced a severe brain injury. And he tells the story in, in his book of uh, the challenges that he encountered going through the education system, how he had to develop coping mechanisms, um, how he uh, had difficulty working into the uh, labor force and so on. And so I like to mix both fiction and nonfiction and, and very, very broadly. If you ask who has a lot of influence on my writing, I think I read, I think, every book that uh, John Grisham has written, except for the children's books and for his last story. I, I haven't got that as a Father's Day gift yet, but I suspect, <laughs> I, I think that will happen soon. Uh, so I enjoy him. I also very much enjoy an African writer by the name of Wilbur Smith. Um, he is not as well known in North America as he is in Europe and UK and Australia, but um, he is a wonderful and prolific storyteller that uh, does, I think, the most descriptive writing of anyone that I can imagine. And I enjoy reading 
uh, his stories, and I enjoy trying to hone some of my descriptive skills using him as an example. And I guess the writer that probably most impacts my pace and the appearance of my books and so on is James Patterson, because Mm. I really do like his idea of short chapters, short paragraphs, very quick pace. And uh, I do try to emulate that as well with uh, all of my stories. Yeah, yeah, I like that as well. It's more energizing to me. Now, you mentioned earlier you worked in the corporate world throughout the length of your career, and then you retired and started a new career as an author. When did you first realize that you wanted to be an author? Well, I think I've always enjoyed reading, and I think all of us who enjoy reading like to write, whether we want to do it as a novel or some other form. I think we all like to write as an expression, I should say as a form of expression. Mm -hmm. And I actually have done writing throughout my corporate career. I I remember back in the 1980s, I uh, was working with a large Japanese uh, automobile company and I was managing the division, but I had such a passion for both selling and writing that I had for a three-year period what I called the tip of the week. Mm. And this would be a one-page tip that I would write every week, regardless of what else was on the agenda. And that was distributed to all of the salespeople in all of the dealerships all across the country. And every week, give them a new idea on things that they could do to improve their sales. And um, when um, the company uh, decided that they did a compilation of these, and they decided they'd like to publish that as tip of the week and distribute it to automobile dealers globally. Mm. I thought that was a nice idea. And I think that's probably the point at which I thought about actually writing a book of some sort sometime in my career. Of course, When we're working in corporate life, it's very difficult to find the time to do enough work to create a book. So I always put that on the back shelf as something that when the corporate side wound down, I would have another career that I can bark upon and and it would have almost no time limitations. So I'm glad I chose it. and I'm having a wonderful time doing it. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. So what do you like to do outside of writing? Well, I do try to get out walking uh, just about every day. It usually works out in the real world to about five days a week. But uh, I do at least uh, six or seven miles every walk and enjoy doing that. One of the disadvantages, if I may say, of, of a rewarding corporate career is that family life, does suffer in terms of time and quality at times. My career was no different in that sense. There were many times where travel was very onerous, a lot of time eaten up in uh, travel around the world and so on. So during the career, there were times when I really would have liked to have more personal family time available. Mm -hmm. And at this stage, Now that I'm involved with writing, I can do that because I am totally in control of my time and able to manage to do all of the things that I want to do from a writing and a promotion of books perspective, but also from the perspective of 
time and, and spending that with family. We have a large family, large extended family, and, and we enjoy spending time with them. And, and of course, uh, during this uh, a little um, pandemic that we're experiencing right now, we curtail that to a great extent. But I'm hoping to get back at that, uh, of course, as we're able to relax the self-isolation and so on. I love to travel, as I've told you before. I really do like to go to places and I don't go on organized tours. We book all of our travel. We rent the place that we're going to stay in. Uh, we live in that community, hopefully for uh, at least a few days and typically for a few weeks. So we get to know some of the uh, some of the neighbors. We get to feel the environment a little bit more than I think most tourists and most most travelers would. To do that, of course. I need to spend a fair amount of time doing the travel. And uh, typically, uh, this year we had to cut it short a little bit, of course, but typically uh, about one third of my year is living somewhere else. Oh. And uh, this year had the opportunity to spend about uh, five weeks in uh, Asia, visiting four countries there and uh, five weeks in Barbados before we had to uh, to cut it short. But I like to break it up that way where some of it is uh, experiencing new countries where I've never been before and learning new places and customs. And uh, also getting to know places like Barbados that I've been to three or four times previously and and compare how it is a, as an island and a society has changed over the 30-some years that I've been going there to visit. Oh, wow. Yeah, how wonderful. Uh, do you have a favorite place? <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't have a favorite place. As you can imagine, people ask me that question a lot. <laughs> and I always like to explain that no matter where I visit – there are going to be some very positive qualities and there are also going to be some detractors. And I go there with that expectation. Mm. I find that to be the case. And the things that are very positive, I retain as, as very nice memories. And the things that are not so positive, I tuck away again as things that we want to avoid in the future. <laughs> but uh, generally... Every place that I visit has some very positive redeeming qualities. And as a result, I go back to places very often. Yeah, nice, nice. Now, I'm so curious. I know Pernicious Pursuit just came out, but I'm, you know, as a reader, I'm looking for what's next. So, so what is next? What are you working on now? Well, I'm actually uh, well into a novel number five, and it's still untitled. And obviously, I can't share too much information with you because uh, so many of the twists and turns are still to be developed. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I can tell you that it will feature some of the characters that have appeared in previous stories. There will be people like Howard Knight that uh, we have all found so, so entertaining. Mm -hmm. And uh, there will be some others as well as uh, at least three completely new characters that I think people will enjoy meeting and, and getting familiar with as well. My original intent was to use the remainder of 
2020 to do the promotion work that uh, we as writers need to do to help folks become familiar with our work. And of course, with uh, COVID-19, that has really stopped effectively any live appearances and signing events and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are events that I always enjoy. Uh, Last year, I did more than 85 personal appearances um, and uh, got to meet a lot of great readers and made a lot of new friends and uh, very much miss not being able to do that right now. The advantage, though, is that it now gives me about 85 days that I didn't have last year to (laughs) work on writing. And uh, as a result, I'm I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to launch uh, novel number five in uh, early 2021. And uh, with any luck, uh, 2021 will give us a lot more latitude for travel and store promotions and so on. And hopefully I'll be out there uh, talking about all five stories. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm excited about that. Looking forward to number five. So is there anything else you wanted to add today for our listeners? Well, just a a quick word of appreciation to you. I I really think that you do a great service to uh, independent authors like myself in terms of uh, reviewing our books and uh, helping to spread the word about them and giving us an opportunity to have this kind of a chat where some of our readers get to know us better. Uh, I think that's a very valuable service, and I thank you for the opportunity and, and encourage you to keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Gary. It's certainly been a pleasure talking with you today and learning more about your work, and and I appreciate the visit. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for joining me today for my interview with Gary D. McGugan, author of Pernicious Pursuit. You can learn more about Gary and his work by visiting his website through the links posted in the show notes. And while you're here, be sure to check out a few of the other interviews on Inside Scoop Live.